Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. This is London, but of course, coming to you across the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet. But whatever you're doing, wherever you're watching it, please share it with as many of your friends and contacts and followers as you possibly can, because I'm determined that we have a regular viewing audience of one million by the end of this year. So they're all looking for Kim Jong-un. Is he alive? Is he dead? Has he been fired across the Korean Peninsula from a, 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 a ballistic missile site? It's amazing how this little country that never has done any of us any harm should so fixate uh, the chattering classes, even on social media. Kim Jong-un dead, hashtag. Well, we don't know if he's dead. We don't even know if he's sick. The habit of the North Korean leadership is to disappear for sometimes quite considerable periods of time, as much as 40 days in Kim Jong-un's case. But the attention has turned to who is going to succeed him if he has indeed perished at the age of 36. And they throw up their hands in horror uh, that the dynastic succession of the Kim family will continue. It's going to be his little sister, they say, sniggering behind their hands as if a 31-year-old Korean woman was inherently incapable of taking on the helm of state in North Korea when her 31-year-old brother was and actually became something of a political superstar not least when he was meeting Donald Trump. Imagine if the only North Korean leader in history to meet an American president were to have perished before his 40th birthday. And that got me thinking to the subject of dynasties, because of course it's a commonplace in Britain that it is abhorrent. It's completely beyond the pale for leadership to pass from father to son. But that's what we've got here in Britain. Prince Charles will become the head of our state without even having to sit a qualifying exam, just as well because he never was much good at exams. But that won't stop him becoming, without a vote being cast, the head of state and the most powerful person in Britain. In the United States, they are equally aghast at the idea that Kim Jong-un might be succeeded by his sister. But George W. Bush begat another President 
George W. Bush. Bill Clinton wed somebody that wanted to be another President Clinton. And their daughter, Chelsea, is limbering up for a run at the US Senate. The Kennedy brothers all wanted to be president, all ran to be president. Jack Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy, and Congress is full of Kennedys. It's remarkable how some dynasties get a pass, but other dynasties don't. God forgive us if Donald Trump ever tries the same thing. President Jared Kushner, anyone? Or what's the daughter's name? I've momentarily forgotten. The idea that the United States, a republic, can pass on power through families is surely no different uh, to the Kim family in North Korea. So we've got a poll running. Which hereditary system do you deplore the most? A, the monarchy, B, US political dynasties, or C, North Korea. And I'd like to see what you have to say on that. But never mind, where's Kim Jong-un? As my friend Afshin Ratansi pointed out on Twitter this morning, where's 20% of the Korean population? All blasted to smithereens by the United States Air Force. As Curtis LeMay, uh, the infamous American military commander, put it, we killed one in five Koreans, and we set on fire every city, town, and village in North Korea. And that was in my lifetime. That was not ancient history. That was in my lifetime, and in the lifetime of many people watching and listening to this show. So just remember, when you hear them prattle about events in North Korea, that if North Korea is paranoid about the United States and about the West, it doesn't mean the United States and the West are not out to get them. Because, well, they were out to get them before. Now, where did you stand on Donald Trump's bravura performance this week? Me, I've hardly stopped laughing at the idea that sunlight or disinfectant might be injected into one or sprayed in one's ears or into one's rectum. I have hardly stopped laughing, especially at the spoof by that young woman comedian, pure genius, Chaplin-esque, using Trump's voice and her actions. Actually, one of the funniest things I have ever seen in my life. But when you think about it, it's not that funny, is it? It's not that funny that the most powerful person in the world is an increasingly unhinged lunatic. It's not that funny that the man with his finger on the nuclear button, the sole man with his finger on the nuclear button, who cannot be stopped from pressing it if he decides to do so, Think about that, ending the entire life of humanity on this planet, not just humanity, but no living thing except perhaps a cockroach would be left alive. 
if Donald Trump pressed that button. And in a way, it's not even funny that the Democrats have put up against him probably the only man in America that might lose to him. A man under such serious question as to his probity, as to his integrity, as to his conduct, as he is under question as to his mental capacities. That, I think, speaks loudest of all that I could say that the leadership of the American empire has come down to a choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Just think about that. And of course, coronavirus continues to dominate all other news coverage. The death toll is now uh, simply enormous. It's well over hundreds. It's now into the hundreds of thousands. Uh, a million people or more have been infected. And of course, tens of millions more have been infected, but have not been tested in order to establish that. If hundreds of thousands of people are killed by a virus, and if that virus sweeps the world in little more uh, than 60 days, 90 days max, uh, then we've got to ask serious questions as to what is this virus? Where did this virus come from? Now, at this moment in time, just like Donald Trump, I'm not a doctor, though I have a bit of new, you know what. At this point in time, I have not seen any evidence uh, that tells me this is anything other than a naturally occurring phenomenon, just like other kinds of viruses. You know my view that it's inimical to uh, put a geographic, still more a political name on a virus. That would be like calling the Texan flu Spanish flu. Oh wait, that's exactly what they did in the pandemic of 1918 to 20. We should have got a clue there that the United States rarely owns its own mistakes. But it's a legitimate question given that many of the US athletes who performed at the Wuhan, yes, Wuhan military games just before the outbreak of this pandemic were based next to Fort Detrick, which has had to be closed in the United States because of repeated leaks, accidents and scandals taking place in that germ warfare laboratory. It's of course, therefore, entirely possible uh, that uh, coronavirus escaped from the Fort Detrick military germ warfare laboratory and was carried to Wuhan inadvertently uh, by American military athletes. It's also possible uh, that the United States deliberately gave uh, this virus to the soldiers who went to the Wuhan military games. And don't tell me they wouldn't do such a thing because they have done such a thing and much worse. 
as indeed has our own country, uh, our germ warfare laboratory in Porton Down. It is also possible uh, that this was a leak from the Chinese germ warfare laboratory in Wuhan. Again, either accidentally or deliberately. All four of these things are possibilities. We'll be talking to Dr. Francis Boyle, a man who believes that the coronavirus-19 is a bioweapon, and we'll be extremely interested to hear from him. He's not a conspiracy theory crank. He's a highly respected person, intellectual, in the United States of America. So stand by for that discussion too. Now I have said for many years on the mother of all talk shows, right back to the beginning in 2006, uh, that the most decisive book for me in my political formation was The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel, a man buried in a pauper's grave in common, a common grave in Liverpool, only decades later, half a century later, placed in a proper piece of consecrated ground. He was a house painter, an uneducated Irish house painter, who wrote this book when he was in the painting and decorating trade on the south coast of England. It's in a place called Mugsborough, but it could actually be any seaside town in Britain at that time. And through the characters of the novel, which wasn't published in his lifetime, by the way, but which has swept the world and been translated into so many different languages, in the course of the novel, Robert Tressel sketches, literally sketches, personalities and things that well over a hundred years later we can recognize in everything we see, hear and do. We recognize that foreman, that gaffer, that manager, that David Brent. We recognize the saints and the sinners amongst our workmates. But what Robert Tressel achieves in this novel is that he, from this microcosm of early 20th century British capitalism, shows the great money trick that continues to be perpetrated against us all. He shows that the system we have is the reason we're in the state we are in. And I'll be talking to a man who's even more expert on this book and on Robert Tressel later in the show about that. My last words before uh, going to the break are these. There's a lot of talk, a lot of chatter, including amongst some very surprising people, and you know who you are. There is time to send our workforce here 
in Britain back to work. Well, I say this. No worker must be forced back to work in this highly infective, toxic environment. Neither forced by poverty nor dictat. Far too many of our workers are already working at this war front, toxic, fatal as it is. So we say this here on the mother of all talk shows. No worker must be sent back to work until the environment is clean. All workers who have to work in this crisis must be protected. And if they cannot be protected, they must not be forced to work. It's time for every bus driver, tube driver, underground staff, shop worker, delivery person, care worker, every key worker in this land must be protected against the potentially fatal, deadly danger of the coronavirus. And if your system can't handle that, it's time to change the system. Uh, which hereditary system do you deplore the most? The monarchy, 42%. US political dynasties, 36%. North Korea, 22%. Way to go, Kim family. You're in the lead. You can vote on my Twitter feed at George Galloway. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, Monday to Friday, most weeks, I sail under the captainship of Manila Chan, my colleague uh, on RT America and its wonderful In Question show. I appear Monday to Friday uh, being questioned by her, and she occasionally appears here on the mother of all talk shows being questioned by me. Good evening, Manila. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, George. Good to be on with you. Thank you so much. Now, uh, let's start. We can't do other than start uh, with the uh, sarcastic uh, performance by Donald Trump the other day when he pretended to be suggesting that sunlight uh, be injected into us or introduced into our bodies by one means or another. He pretended to be suggesting that perhaps disinfectant 
could be put into our lungs to do a number on the coronavirus uh, there uh, present. Um, was he being sarcastic? Sarcasm's not a thing I have uh, associated with Donald Trump much. Uh Sarcasm, I would say not so much. I think what we witnessed there was the president's stream of consciousness, which I don't think is a good characteristic of a world leader. But I think we were hearing his stream of consciousness without the filter, which he often does. And he often translates onto onto Twitter. This time it just happened to be at the national press conference on coronavirus. Now, what's more interesting, I think, if you ignore what President Trump was saying, and you look off to the side and focus in on Dr. Deborah Burks and her facial expressions <laughs> as he was saying these things, she, it's almost as if she forgot there were cameras present. She tried very hard to retain a straight face, but oh boy, you could see the, the MD in her cringing with every word coming out of the president's mouth. And, and I was too, I was, it, it was abhorrent what he said. It, I could not believe that this is the leader of the free world, George. It's unbelievable, the stream of consciousness, nobody can rein in the president's mouth. And of course, life being what it is, um, A&E departments all over America and probably farther uh, afield, uh, are, you know, the, the, they're admitting some of the most embarrassed patients uh, in the land who have tried to insert uh, bottles of, uh, of disinfectant in themselves at one end or the other. Uh, it's, it's not cost free, this kind of thing. Uh, no, George. The, like I said, the stream of consciousness is a very dangerous flaw in his personality because there are people, if you recall, that ate Tide Pods when they came out. Some people would argue that this is Darwinism and, and, and Darwinism doesn't care which way you vote. If you're a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian or a Green Party, there are people out there that you know, if you remember a few years ago, found Tide Pods to look appetizing. So I imagine these are the same people that would try to inject Lysol or drink bleach or snort uh, Tide or however you want to cleanse your body. But I think, uh, I think being a native Californian, uh, internal cleanse is a big thing in California. I don't think it ever involved laundry detergent or household cleaners. No, th that's usually called embalming and it happens <laughs> to dead people. And anyone doing it is going to, if, unless they're extremely lucky, uh, be a dead user of detergent or, uh, or bleach. Let's move on a bit. Um, you have lost now more people dead in three months than you lost in the entire decade and a half of the Vietnam War in the 1960s and 70s. In terms of 9-11, uh, you've lost 11 or 12 times as many people uh, in the last three months as you did uh, on 9-11. That must be devastating to the president's standing and his prospects in November, mustn't it? Uh, I, I do believe this has an impact, obviously, uh, in the November 2020 elections. 
However, if I could put this into perspective for your listeners and your viewers out there uh, who are not in the U.S., um, the regular, the quote, regular flu in the U.S. kills tens of thousands of people per year. Car accidents kill people in the tens of thousands and more than this per year. Uh, Gun violence over the weekend in Chicago over the past 10 years in Chicago alone is tantamount to the same numbers that we're facing with coronavirus. Uh, We have huge sharp rises in death tolls across the U.S. for varying reasons. It could be car accidents, as I mentioned, or or gun violence or what have you. Uh, But the alarm is being raised now because this, hence the name novel coronavirus, this is just simply something the world has yet to witness and it's taking the world by storm. So I admit people are taken aback by it. However, putting these numbers into perspective, uh, if it didn't have such an economic toll on people, uh, you know, a a car accident is an isolated incident. A, A gunshot is isolated to whoever is shot. But because this is transmissible, uh, people are, are very panicked, obviously, but the death toll numbers, if you put it into perspective, it really isn't anything more outlandish than the number of people who die in car wrecks here in the U.S., George. So you, you think uh, by the time November comes, this will, this will not be anything like the biggest electoral issue? I don't think the, the death toll itself will be what harms President Trump's election. I think the economic impacts are, are going to be what what hurts him the most. And how he goes about treating the economy versus uh, those who are ill, those who are recovered, and those who have passed. If he handles uh, the victims of coronavirus uh, a little gentler and figures out, uh, and I admit he's, in, he's between a rock and a hard place, Uh, trying to quarantine healthy folks so they stay healthy and and speaking um, mildly of those who have passed. How do you go ahead and and reopen the economy without harming those who are currently healthy, George? This I mean, he's in a he's in a very difficult position. uh, And I do believe that a lot of people who who have read up on this and, and not the misinformation even if the economy was reopened, I do believe a lot of people will take uh, personal measures to stay home, um, whether it's for voting or grocery shopping um, or, or pumping gasoline at the, at the gas station. People are gonna take protective measures on their own. I think for President Trump, what he needs to worry about is how he gets this economy restarted without looking callous to the situation. Because right now, Joe Biden in three key swing states, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Michigan, he is ahead of President Trump, just barely a few points beyond the margin of error. But I, I should warn you that in 2016, the polls showed Hillary Clinton ahead in those states as well. And we know what happened with those states uh, at the end. But right now, Joe Biden, his uh, silence is actually proving to help his career more than President Trump's constant stream of consciousness. Well, that, that is a very good point. Uh, the unfiltered uh, Donald Trump has turned out uh, probably to be quite uh, damaging uh, to him, whereas uh, Joe Biden is being entirely filtered. Uh, he, he only talks from his basement. He knows not where. 
That's right. Uh, and, uh, and he can scarcely read the auto cue. <laughs> um, and yet that is not yet, at least, harming him in the polls. As you say, in those swing states, right. uh, he is uh, quite a few points ahead. Uh, mm -hmm. Not big, but quite a few points ahead. So in that case, if Trump's stream of consciousness is not helping him, uh, no. is the emergence now in quite a serious way of alleged, unproven uh, sexual impropriety allegations against Joe Biden, is that ever going to get traction, do you think? Or uh, was all the liberal pussy hat horror at Donald Trump's conduct just hypocrisy? Bingo, George, you hit it on the nose. Uh, a lot of the media here in the U.S. is, is very left-leaning. They're very favorable to, to Joe Biden, as we know. Uh, there are a couple of networks who are, are Trump fans, um, but there are, there are certain footage that has been unearthed that right now, I can tell you, has already disappeared off of the internet magically. Uh, and we were planning to talk about this on my show uh, in the coming weeks as we, had, we have next week to do the research, but the footage magically has disappeared from, guess who? CNN. Uh, CNN, who obviously was the longtime employer of our friend Larry King, there's audio and video footage of Larry speaking with the young accuser, the, the, the then young accuser's mother, who phoned in with her concerns, who, who did not name the senator, the high-profile senator, who she phoned in with the question about. Uh, but we all know that this is now, if you connect the dots, that it was Joe Biden. So my concern is that the, the mainstream media that leans left uh, would so badly want Joe Biden to win that they would not apply the same rules and scrutiny that they did to President Trump or uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh when, when uh, he was being grilled by Congress before he became a member of this uh, Supreme Court. Yes. They're not going to hold him to the same. They're not, George. They're not going to hold him to the same account that, that they do with the Republicans. So just imagine if someone had rung many years ago Larry King's show on CNN making serious allegations of sexual assault, perhaps rape, uh, against a uh, prominent hotelier in New York, and then there's an election coming up in which that prominent hotelier is a candidate, and instead of making that the story that it obviously is, they literally expunge it from the internet. Right. In terms of hypocrisy, that's pretty hard to beat. You're absolutely right. But George, I think because of, of folks like you, folks like me, networks like RT, who are not part of the mainstream, we are unfiltered by the pressures that come from the mainstream, which are namely the advertisers or political interests or what have you. Uh, people are more straight shooters on al alternative media because we aren't paid by political interests. We aren't paid by, you know, General Motors advertising or Ford advertising or Johnson and Johnson or or Teva Pharmaceuticals. We are are 
paid to speak the truth and seek the truth. Whereas mainstream media, I think nowadays the viewers, the listeners, uh, certainly the folks that listen to your show know much better, but there are still huge swaths of at least Americans who buy into it completely. Uh, and, and they will fall on one side or the other and they, they buy uh, either side their story, hook, line, and sinker. Unbelievable. Manila Chan, my captain, my captain, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, Dr. Francis Boyle is a human rights lawyer and professor of international law at the University of Illinois College of Law. He drafted the U.S. domestic uh, treaty implementing legislation for the Biological Weapons Convention, known as the Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act of 1989, that was approved unanimously by both houses of the United States Congress and signed into law by President George H. W. Bush, Bush the first. Dr. Boyle has been writing uh, his theory uh, that the coronavirus 19, which has swept the world, as none of you need me to remind you, is actually a man-made bioweapon. So people asked us last week uh, if we would reach out to Dr. Boyle to get him to come on the mother of all talk shows to speak to his theory. And he has kindly agreed to do so. And if I'm lucky, he'll be there now on Skype. Dr. Boyle, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, George, uh, thank you very much for having me on my best to your audience. No, uh, I, I, I respect you, uh, but I don't, on the face of it, take seriously your thesis. Try and persuade me otherwise. Well, George, I've given numerous interviews on this, uh, including a 75-minute um, uh, lecture that I did send to your um, producer. Yeah. So, yeah. There it is. No, we've got the, we've got the long version. Give, give, give this mass audience now the short version. Why do you think as you think on this, Francis? Right. Well, I uh, identified uh, several different scholarly scientific uh, articles uh, to back up what I am saying that this Wuhan BSL-4 uh, is China's Fort Detrick, first of all. So we have to face up to that. And we all know that historically and still as of today, Fort Detrick researches, develops, tests, stockpiles, every hideous biological warfare weapon you can possibly imagine. And the uh, uh, Wuhan BSL-4 was trying to do the same. And that is where this uh, COVID-19 came from. I don't believe it was uh, deliberate. Um, I'm not, a, as you know, George, I'm not a neocon and I'm not a China basher under international law. They, they're entitled to have whatever government they want. So it was a leak and indeed, um, China has uh, BSL-3s there, which are also uh, biological warfare weapons. 
and there have been leaks out of there uh, too. Uh, so I I believe that's what happened here. The uh, what is called COVID uh, is let let's start with the component units. First, it is SARS, and SARS is a uh, weaponized version of coronavirus, which is what um, uh, you know is the common cold dogs have it or whatever. And that uh, SARS uh, epidemic leaked out of uh, one of these uh, Chinese BSL-3s uh, before. Again, there, even Fort Detrick had a major leak uh, last summer. So uh, that's what happened there. Uh, second, uh, I did identify in my uh, interviews uh, a um, scientific article uh, by the University of North Carolina uh, dealing with the weaponization of SARS at their BSL-3-2. And the top um, virologist at that BSL-4, Xi, Dr. Xi, she worked with the University of uh, Carolina, North Carolina on this technology. So it does appear that she took the technology. What was going on there at the University of North Carolina, they were taking SARS, which is a weaponized uh, coronavirus to begin with, and, and extremely uh, uh, dangerous. The uh, uh, lethality of SARS is about 15%, which is what this is, maybe more. And... Um, they were giving it uh, gain-of-function uh, properties, which meant it made it more lethal and more uh, infectious. And they got cells from Fort Detrick <laughs> to trace the line here uh, and using uh, synthetic biology. So it does appear that uh, uh, G here took this technology back to the... Uh, Wuhan BSL-4. And then also in my uh, uh, lengthier interview, I pointed out another scientific study where a virologist from the Wuhan BSL-4 worked with the uh, Australian uh, Health Board to DNA genetically engineer HIV into SARS, uh, thus also making it a uh, uh, a biological warfare weapon. So it seems to me that um, what happened there at the Wuhan BSL-4 was that they took these two types of technologies from, uh, well, their own indigenous SARS, which was a, a weaponized coronavirus, then the gain of function from North Carolina, which had uh, cells provided by Fort Detrick that admits admits it, they were uh, synthesized synthetic cells. We don't know exactly what they were. And then the uh, DNA uh, genetic engineered into SARS, and they tried to put it all together. And that theory now has been confirmed by this uh, French uh, winner, the Nobel Prize winner in uh, medicine, saying, yes, um, uh, HIV is uh, DNA genetically engineered right into COVID-19. The final uh, element of the, uh, now all that can be documented 
by scientific research papers that have been published. And I sent all that information to your producer in that 75-minute lecture mm-hmm. uh, I, I gave you. You can put that on your website if you want. I spent the 75 minutes just to go through it all. Um, the final element is this um, Harvard um, chair of the uh, chemistry uh, department who is a specialist in nanotechnology. Uh, he also worked with Fort Dietrich. And he had his own laboratory over there in Wuhan, where it is admitted he was working on biological matters. So it doesn't seem to me that nanotechnology could have been applied uh, to this uh, sort of devil's cocktail um, by means of this uh, particular professor. And this is what we're uh, dealing with. It's, It's existentially dangerous and I think we have to come to grips with it. I'm not saying we have to punish China or anything like that. <laughs> you know, the global onists were, uh, uh, they or outsourced all of our uh, medical uh, 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 agents and uh, equipment to China. So China really has us by our throat. We can't really punish China here, and I'm not advocating that. But what I am saying is that, um, you know, over there in uh, Britain, uh, under uh, Boris Johnson, they're, they're treating us sort of like the flu, and here in the United States as well. And this is not the flu. As far as uh, I can estimate, again, the uh, lethality rate here goes from uh, maybe 15% to 17%. And the 17% figure uh, is by one of your own uh, public health authorities over there in the U.K., And this has recently been confirmed in the uh, uh, New York Times last week. So I I believe this is what we're dealing with. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, certainly it's existentially dangerous. Uh, The Financial Times had uh, an article today that these uh, estimates of the death uh, really need to be doubled because uh, it's excess mortality, whereas what we're getting reported is only people who die in hospitals. And uh, uh, a lot of people, you know, don't die in hospitals. Sure. Now, uh, I mean, uh, you use the word could, and uh, I'm perfectly cool with uh, accepting the word could. But tell us why everyone involved would be denying this. Why would the French government, for example, be denying it? Why would the World Health Organization be denying it? Because whilst you don't want to punish China, I can assure you, and you know this better than me, uh, in the United States and in many other parts of the world, there is an inordinate determination to punish China. So why would there not already be a political stroke scientific consensus behind your thesis already. Right, George. Well, let me also say, as for the WHO, it's worse than that, in that uh, uh, the Chinese Fort Dietrich was a WHO uh, research-designated lab. And that's the problem here. The WHO was complicit in this, as I pointed out here in the United States. Uh, This uh, research was financed by NIH, National Institutes of Health, and also by uh, NIAID under uh, 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 Tony Fauci. They knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, Fort Detrick was involved. Uh, They knew what they were doing. 
Uh, uh, the uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard was involved. Uh, the um, uh, Food and Drug Administration were involved. So the United States government has every incentive to cover this up and what really happened here. Now, as for foreign governments, the answer is quite clear, George, in that these major military powers also have their own BSL force and are engaged in the exact same time of uh, 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 hideous Nazi biological warfare work as the uh, Wuhan BSL-4 or Fort Detrick. There in Britain, you have Porton Down. You know what Porton Down is up to. Canada, their, their equivalent of Fort Detrick is uh, Winnipeg. Uh, France does the same. So they do not want, and they're all interconnected with each other. They all work with each other. They're all in cahoots with each other. So they have uh, uh, every interest in the world to uh, cover this up. Although, again, I did say this uh, um, French Nobel Prize winner uh, in uh, medicine agreed with me. And then recently uh, this week, one of the uh, top professors in uh, microbiology in Russia has also agreed with me. I've been arguing this fact since um, January 24, when I first went public with George Wright. Now, uh, of course, we both know that uh that uh, regimes, historically and contemporaneous uh, regimes, uh, are ready to use the most uh, hideous uh, weapons. Uh, Mr. Churchill, for example, had laid in uh, biological and chemical weapons along the south coast of England, uh, should Hitler have managed to uh, cross the channel. Uh, and of course, Mr. Churchill dropped uh, chemical weapons on uh, Kurdish tribesmen, as they called them, uh, in, the, uh, in the 1920s. Uh, of course, the United States dropped an ocean of chemical weapons on the people of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Uh, of course, the United States landed two uh, atomic weapons uh, on the people of Japan. So, uh, if I balk at your thesis, it's not because I think these uh, regimes would not be capable of, would not be prepared to uh, do this kind of work uh, to get an advantage in a devil's cocktail, as you memorably put it, uh, of astounding lethality and infectivity. Uh, what I find a problem is that, that uh, as I say, everyone involved uh, denies it. Um, and I'm not sure that the fact that they're all up to it uh, would fully uh, explain that, Francis, because although they're all up to it, that wouldn't stop them pointing the finger at China, would it? Well, some of them are now pointing the finger at China. You'll note your own government there, George, is doing that, and uh, Trump is doing that. So uh, uh, I'm afraid we might be seeing more of that. But look, th what we have here, George, even though there's the Biological Weapons Convention, certainly starting with the Reagan administration and his neoconservatives who uh, uh, supported biological weapons. And you can read that, for example, in the neocon PNAC report, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where they advocated biological weapons, indeed, indeed uh, ethnic-specific uh, biological weapons. 
So starting with Reagan, uh, we have seen an offensive biological warfare uh, weapons race. Um, uh, obviously, you know, George, I've never worked for the U.S. government because of Vietnam as a matter of principle. I've never had a security clearance. Uh, I, I have no access to secret information or anything like that. But you know, I'm sure China, Russia, France, Britain, they all have their own people read the same technical literature I do. And it's very clear, starting with Reagan, when I first got involved in this, uh, that we're seeing an offensive biological warfare uh, weapons race involving uh, DNA genetic engineering, and now the new area of synthetic biology, which was sponsored by and paid for and set up by the Pentagon's uh, DARPA office. So uh, the other governments have reciprocated in kind. Uh, they don't want to say anything in public because uh, it's illegal. They would be admitting to a violation of the Biological Weapons Convention, uh, which they don't want to do. Uh, here in the United States, we have my Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act that provides for uh, life imprisonment. I resisted the Department of Justice demands I put the death penalty in there because I oppose the death penalty. I also believe that uh, uh, last time I looked at it, which was years ago, you and Britain have uh, implementing legislation for the Biological Weapons Convention. So no one wants to uh, own up. None of these governments want to own up to the fact that they were uh, engaging in this uh, Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act. Right. Russia, too. I, I I'm not excluding any of these great military powers. They pursued uh, biological weapons, which are existentially dangerous, for the exact same reason they pursued uh, nuclear weapons that are existentially dangerous. It's this uh, homicidal, genocidal mentality that uh, all these uh, major military powers have in common. Now, to sum up, uh, this devil's cocktail, uh, in your thesis, is a Sino-American cocktail. Uh, it, uh, it comes out of Dietrich, uh, North Carolina, and Wuhan. Is that a fair summary? And it does appear Australia was involved in the uh, project to uh, DNA genetically uh, engineer the HIV in there too, which has been uh, confirmed for sure that there is HIV in there. But uh, let me say one thing, uh, uh, George. Uh, about your own government uh, there, Boris Johnson. I condemn in the strongest terms possible uh, his uh, approach to this uh, that has been announced by scientific advisors, herd immunity. That's preposterous. There is no such thing as herd immunity under these circumstances. Uh, what we're seeing not only with Johnson, but also with Trump is the uh, Nazi philosophy of useless eaters that they're going to, both governments, uh, uh, with this demand to reopen the economy uh, and the plutocrats who run it, are sending out the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden, people of color, uh, uh, minorities, uh, blue-collar workers, farmers, and rural people to go out there and get killed by uh, COVID-19, and they know it. And this is sort of the philosophy of a uh, culling of the herd. Um, and that, you know, they couldn't care less uh, about uh, most of us, even, uh, you know, white collar uh, workers who can't afford to work from home or order to go back to work. Uh, we are uh, all at risk.
I think that would be my summary. And, and Johnson, at least, was honest about it. You know, he get the uh, he gave that uh, first speech and the scientific advisors saying herd immunity, which basically means, okay, we're going to get uh, everyone uh, uh, infected by COVID. That means uh, 15 to 17 percent uh, lethality of people over there in Britain will die. Here in the United States, they're more subtle about it. Uh, they don't particularly come out and admit that. But, you know, all these leadership elites, certainly in Britain and the United States, think and uh, operate the same. But even here in the United States, uh, the government, Trump and his people have admitted they're treating it like the flu. And this isn't the flu. The flu uh, lethality rate is about 0.1%. As I said, for COVID-19, it's probably somewhere between 15 to uh, 17%. And that, that's what we're facing. And Johnson and Trump are just knowingly throwing everyone uh, into the fire of the furnace. Well, it's a, it's a terrifying uh, uh, perspective uh, that you outline. Makes Dr. Strangelove uh, look, like, uh, look like a Disney movie. I'm grateful for your time, Dr. Francis Boyle, human rights lawyer and professor of international law at the University of Illinois College of Law. Man with uh, quite a bit of uh, legislative history uh, behind him. So we're not talking to uh, a guy on the street. Uh, and that's uh, definitely a food I would have thought. Wouldn't you? Food for thought? Let's take a quick break. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I unveiled, it seems, now months ago. It was The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist, written by Robert Tressel. And I asked you all to get yourselves a copy of it or to find and download online. There's many places you could do it. I asked you to read it, to study it, and to be ready for a proper discussion about it. And then I found that a man I've known for, well, 20 years anyway, Alan Taylor, a Scottish journalist and author, is actually a very good person to talk to about it. So I'm very glad to say he accepted my invitation and he joins us now. Alan. Uh, nice to hear you, George. And you, long time no see. Now, yeah, long time. I, I didn't even get a chance to see you now on the screen. My apologies for that. Um, Alan, <laughs> uh, we've been asking the viewers and listeners for some weeks now uh, to study uh, the Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. But for those who didn't do their homework, Summarize for us the book and its importance, would you? Well, it's a true story of working class life about um, a group of workers who work for a company called Rushton & Co. They're uh, builders and decorators and they're renovating and decorating a house. And uh, these workers are a sort of motley crew 
Um, they have all kinds of different political opinions or different kinds of workers. Um, the main character in the book is a chap called Frank Owen, who is a cut above most insofar as he's well-read, he's politically astute, he takes great pride in his work, but he can also see the terrible injustices that are being done to himself and to his fellow workers and to the, the inequalities that capitalism uh, arises. Um, and he, he is, he's a kind of remarkable character, and I think he became a sort of exemplar for many people on the left in the socialist movement. Um, and so the book was published uh, after um, Tressel's death. Tressel was um, the pseudonym of a man called Robert Noonan, and he chose the name Tressel because Noonan was a painter and decorator himself, and a trestle table is obviously one of the key implements and uh, <laughs> instruments that the, the workers need in that industry. Um, and so the book was published in 1914, four years after Trestle's death. It was a slow burn, but increasingly became popular among uh, the left classes and the socialist classes, and was handed down from one person to another. Was especially popular during the Second World War, when uh, you know hundreds of thousands of people read it. Uh, and finally, in 1955, a proper uh, unabridged, unexpurgated un edition appeared, and it's never been out of print since. It's probably the most important. I would say probably the most important socialist book um, since the Communist Manifesto, and probably better read than the Communist Manifesto. And yet, and yet. Um he never made a penny, he died, well, no. a, he died a pauper, he never saw it published in his lifetime, no. and the skill with which it's written, you and I both write, and we know it's, it's, it's not an easy thing uh, to do, uh, and uh, we had an education that Robert Tressel did not. Uh, it, well, is, it, is, it is a remarkable achievement, isn't it? It is a remarkable achievement. and. Um, there are certain sadnesses uh, when, when you think back to it. You know, as far as we know, George, this was his only book. Yeah. Um, that because he never found a publisher, um, and even when it was published in this expurgated form, it wasn't properly edited. So the kind of editing that another writer might have got, Trestle didn't get. So that allowed some people, although they found the book remarkable, they would say things like it's rather roughly written. And so, and so it is in part, but it wouldn't have taken much to make it a smoother read, put it that way, if he'd had an editor. Um, the thing about Trestle was that he wasn't really born working class. His, his family were um, maybe what you might call lower middle class from Dublin. But he was, in uh, that old-fashioned word, an autodidact, and uh, was extremely well-read. Um, the, the working class produced lots of great autodidacts, people who had access to a public library and would read their way through it. And Trestle was one of these people. And so, although not um, ex extremely well-educated, he was extremely well-read. And so he knew, in a way, how to construct a book and how to paint characters in a vivid way and how to present an argument. And he also knew how to tug your heartstrings. It's an incredibly moving book. Yeah. It is extre extremely moving. Uh, he also had an eye. I mean, we've all worked with uh, the kind of foreman and, uh, and, uh, and managers uh, that uh, Owen was describing uh, in the, uh, that Trestle was describing through Owen's yeah. eyes. We, yes. We've all met that, that kind of uh, um, guy in the office. 
if I yeah. can put it that way. Well, absolutely. And um, there's, there's some very remarkable things about the book. For example, although Owen is an avowed socialist, he realises that people don't even know what the, the word socialist means. They, 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 their heads are full of cant, mainly supply, um, supplied by bad newspapers, I have to say. And then these these owners are there just to squeeze every, every last drop of profit out of everything. And one of the reasons this irritates Owen so much, and one of the reasons I think he's such an admirable character, is that he wants to do a good job. He doesn't want to scamp, as he calls it. He wants to do a job that's worthy of his talent. And I think that's one of the great things about him. He's in that sort of artisanal tradition of, of being a very good craftsman, and he doesn't want his work that will endure after he's gone to show badly on him. And so while he's stricken with poverty, as his fellow workers are, and this is one of the main bugbears of his life, Another big bugbear is that these owners will not allow him to do the job that he's capable of. And I think that's a fascinating aspect of that it whole is. story. It is, absolutely. Uh, now, uh, he, Trestle goes into uh, the, the role of religion in the false consciousness of the workers, uh, yeah. uh, the, 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 the hypocrites. It's almost uh, a sort of Holy Willie's, Holy Willie's prayer. Yeah. Uh, Robert Burns uh, in the it's absolutely excoriating attack on the hypocrites uh, of the organized Christian religion of the time. Uh, absolutely. And I think, again, that's quite you know a remarkable thing about the book. I mean, it has attacks on all sorts of aspects of society and the one on religion is particularly virulent. He's a he is a great satirist as well, uh, Trestle, you know. He, he, the book is not full of humour, one has to admit. You know, you've got to say, look, it's not a bundle of laughs. But at the same time, there are moments of high kind of farce and comedy about it. Ah. And, and religion, religion comes out badly out of the book, very, you know. Very bad. Um, uh, um, but also, you, you have to say that some of the uh, some of the arguments presented in the book are, are some of the same arguments you hear presented today, that... People try to find scapegoats for the situation rather than look the problem straight in the face. So instead of being realizing they're being exploited by their, their owners and bosses, the workers blame other people, immigrants, for example. Um, I, I guess at that time, what, uh, in the early 1900s, the kind of immigrants they're talking about are probably Irish immigrants. Uh, Irish and Jewish. Uh, as a matter of yeah. fact, the first debate uh, in the book, right at the first couple of chapters, is about the impact of an immigration measure which has just been passed, which has allowed a flood of Jewish immigrants into the country from Eastern Europe, yeah. no doubt fleeing yeah. persecution yeah. and pogrom and so on. Yeah. Uh, and the arguments, you're right, are exactly the arguments you'd hear or even read in the sun that you yeah. would hear uh, in the pub uh, in the 21st century. Yeah, and they're, they're always ignorant. You know, they're not informed in the way that Owen is. Owen's boned up on these subjects, and he knows the background to them, and he can tell you the history of 
things and he can put them in context and this is the stuff you hear now just kind of off the cuff prejudice it is really it's it's not informed in any kind of way it's just fed by virulent headlines and papers that want to manipulate people and that's very upsetting it's somebody who's a, a newspaper man it really upsets me that that newspapers go out of their way sometimes to do that to manipulate public opinion uh, and to play on people's ignorance or gullibility or naivety or whatever call it and Trestle gets this spot on he's really good at that really good at that as I say I'm, I'm very saddened by the fact that this is his only novel because had this come I mean had he got some kind of recognition and had he met some people who might have helped him in the literary sphere of things he might have gone on to write other interesting books and develop the themes he was there and become quite an important thinker in his own right there but he you know he was the beginning of a trend and um, i think this is probably what you might call the first real working class novel published in England or in Britain um, and others came later and other books um, sort of used Trestle's example uh, there's a lovely book called uh, the um, autobiography of a super tramp by W.H. Davis clearly had known Trestle's book uh, George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London um, clearly Jack, Jack London Jack London's Jack work London also too. Jack London's work also yeah um, so these, but it's actually other books which kind of might depict working class life usually came from top down. So, so you, there's a writer, not many people know, but was as well regarded in literary circles called Henry Green. And he writes about factory life in the Second World War, but he writes about it from the perspective of an old Etonian. So he can't realise what it's like to be just on the cusp of losing your job, that every hour somebody can take that job away from you and throw you and your family on the breadline. And that is something that Trestle, I think, really depicts very well, this kind of overhanging threat that all the time your small chance of livelihood could be gone. And the other thing that really is impressive, George, I think, is his sort of definition of poverty. It's not whether you can just get a crust or a glass of milk or something like that to sustain you. It's that you can't actually have the life that you should be able to live in a civilised society. It's not about just getting by. It's about living a fulfilled life. And I think that's really interesting, too. Remarkable. And he died in Liverpool because he was on his way uh, to the United States or Canada, I'm not sure which. And, uh, yeah, I think he was on his way to Canada. Yeah, on his way to Canada. He so his, he, he goes, his journey is from Dublin uh, to <clears> the uh, town of Hastings on the south coast yeah. where he's actually based the story and where he was himself uh, doing his painting and decorating. He takes his child, his only child, I think, uh, to Liverpool and he dies. And yeah, he they, dies. they don't have money to bury him. So no. he's in a pauper's grave. The man who wrote and bestowed to us this treasure, uh, which, as yeah. you say, has not been out of print in 100 years nearly. Uh, uh, yeah. It, it, it's a sad story. Yeah, and I don't even know if his grave is uh, marked. No, it is uh, now. Uh, I'll tell you in, what. In, in Liverpool Thanks anyway. to... Uh, um, just, um, so no, it's a very sad story. Yeah. Um, uh, it is. He died of TB. Yeah, he died of TB, but he was in a pauper's grave, but he is not now. He has a proper grave no. with a beautiful headstone, and I've been to it. And, well, I'm pleased uh, to hear. Yeah, the man responsible was the late Ron Todd, the 
late leader of the Transport and General Workers Union, who was determined to fundraise and, and sort this situation uh, out. I was able to help him in a very small way. Uh, but uh, Ron Todd uh, got the grave nice and proper. And if you're, uh, if you're ever in Liverpool, uh, mm -hmm. Alan, I advise you to go and see it. Thanks for bringing the book uh, alive uh, for us. I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be many more sales of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropist from the audience this evening. Thanks for joining us. Now, uh, one or two uh, comments before we turn to our Moats medic, Dr. Ranjit. Uh, Paul says, as a socialist, I can care that the Ragged Trousered Philanthropist... Ragged Trousered Philanthropist is one of the most fantastic reads ever. I actually didn't physically read the book, but I listened to the audiobook version, skillfully narrated by a certain George Galloway in his usual dulcet tone. I was too modest to mention that, Paul. Mark says, when I was 16, I asked my brother-in-law, what is socialism? He gave me a ragged copy of Ragged Trousers. I devoured it in a few days, a superb, inspiring read. Is there an equivalent book on the right? <laughs> Good question, Mark. And uh, on Twitter, Busy Dad says, I'm a key worker and have been successfully funded and set up by my employer to homework. They have literally sped from zero to full readiness for homeworking since the lockdown date. There are many horror stories out there, uh, but also some good ones worth speaking about as well. Amen. And Terry says, the Scots are making me laugh with these calls tonight. They're on great form. You're right. It's been like whiskey galore. Now, Dr. Ranjit Brar is an NHS consultant, physician, and surgeon, though he's speaking entirely in a personal uh, capacity, of course. That's important because uh, the NHS has uh, cracked down, shall we say, on uh, staff saying anything in public that might cast the current parlous state of personal protection in particular, but also intensive care capacity in a bad light. Uh, Dr. Ranjit's been joining us every week, it seems, uh, since the beginning, but actually only uh, for the last few weeks. And I think that I can say he's become one of the clearest and one of the smartest commentators on what's happening with coronavirus-19 in the land or any other land for that matter. So I'm glad to welcome him back, Dr. Ranjit. Welcome Thank again. You. Great to be with you. Now, uh, let's start, if we could. Uh, I don't know if you heard my interview with Dr. Francis Boyle, uh, but uh, he was making some pretty hair-raising uh, statements, allegations, I suppose you'd call them. Uh, he basically says that COVID-19 is a devil's cocktail cooked up between the American uh, biological warfare uh, establishment and the Chinese and that it uh, inadvertently escaped, and that it may well kill 15% uh, of all who get it. If true, of course, that would make it one of the biggest war crimes uh, we've ever seen, wouldn't it? Well, well I think the, uh, the operative word there is, is if, George. I mean, 
it would make it a crime. And look, I don't want to say that the United States has a clean record in this regard, or indeed Britain at Portland, Portland Down. For anyone who's followed what's been going on at Portland Down or the chemical weapons or biological weapons program of Britain or the United States, you know that they've spread swine flu all over Cuba to try and eradicate their pigs, that they've used anthrax in biological war, they've released um, bacteria uh, even on the London underground as recently as the 1960s. So look, these things are not beyond the realm of possibility. But it's not really uh, uh, proven, and I've seen no strong evidence to show that this is indeed a hostile weapon. We do know that coronaviruses are widespread throughout nature. We know that we've had previous genetic mutations of coronaviruses, such as the SARS and MERS uh, episodes. Uh, and we've had, you know, uh, serious outbreaks of mutations of the flu virus, which have caused concern, swine flu uh, and avian flu. And of course, it was avian flu uh, that triggered the Operation Cygnus. You know, so, so we are aware that naturally occurring outbreaks do happen. I mean, going back to the Black Death, a third of the population of Europe was wiped out uh, in, in medieval times. So that these things do happen periodically. The point really for me is not so much that it's a weapon. I haven't seen that evidence. So obviously, if, you know, if, if con compelling evidence comes to light, I'll be only too happy to look at it and consider it as a possibility. But these are naturally occurring phenomenon, um, and they do have potentially disastrous implications. But I think the real in indictment of our leadership, of our government, is not the fact that this, I, I don't hold them accountable for the virus, but the way that they have dealt with it and its impact, which is highly disproportionate on the working classes, on the poorest in the world. And indeed, we had warning if we ran Operation Cygnus and, you know, there's a group of doctors called 54,000 doctors uh, headed by Musa Qureshi, an NHS consultant in hematology, who were trying to make this operation public because we know it was run in 2016 under Mac, uh, under, sorry, um, Jeremy um, Hunt. Jeremy Hunt, thank you. Uh, we know that they found, uh, that they, they simulated this virus spreading as they periodically do, that it was in the seventh week of the virus. Numbers were escalating and they found the NHS fell over. We know they found they had inadequate levels of PPE and inadequate levels of ventilators and ICU capacity. Now, this was being run at a time when, you know, yet more swathes of our NHS beds were being taken away. And its report, this report was, was considered to be too toxic to publish precisely because it showed the inherent danger of running down the capacity of the NHS to record lows. Now that capacity is being run down deliberately because if you can't get your needs reasonably met within the National Health Service and you have the means, it's only reasonable. You can't afford to wait. You know, people are forced to go uh, to the private sector. So how do you force people to go to the private sector? You ration public care. So this is a very deliberate policy which has led us in this situation. I'm quite convinced that at root uh, of why this Operation Cygnus wasn't published we'll find that these are the considerations, that they weren't prepared to change their direction of policy. There's a direction of continuous cuts, continuous privatization, and that is unassailable and unchallengeable at the heart of Tory party, but also, you know, Labour party ethos under Tony Blair, for example. So to me, these are the major issues rather than, is this a weaponized virus? I haven't seen that, that, that con convincing evidence, George. No. Uh we are 0.86 of the population of the world, uh, but we are 10% of the deaths uh, 
in the world. That's pretty damning, isn't it? Um, it, it? It is, George. And the official hospital recorded deaths we know are a, a gross underestimate. Uh, there were people at the beginning of this pandemic who were pointing to the fact that as yet they hadn't seen figures showing that there was an excess mortality. That's an increase in overall mortality compared to the average. Indeed, prior to this pandemic, we were experiencing relatively uh, uh, low levels of overall mortality in the country. Um, the weather is good. There are all kinds of reasons why these things fluctuate. Um, but now we're seeing very clearly the highest levels of mortality, weekly mortality ever recorded in the country. And the Financial Times, together with uh, various medical institutes, including Oxford uh, Institute of um, uh, Medical uh, Statistics, uh, conducted analysis which showed that probably the true rates of death from coronavirus were twice those that we were being recorded and told about in hospital deaths only. So that means really rather than 1,000 a day at, at peak, we were looking more like 2,000 a day. And we still don't know if actually the majority of deaths are occurring outside hospital because there's been a persistent drive to ask the elderly to sign, you know, DNAR, do not attempt resuscitation forms, peace agreements to agree that they're unlikely to survive in the event of them getting the virus and they shouldn't come to hospital. And we know that people in care homes are still not being tested. And again, this fact that we haven't tested, haven't contact traced, I feel like we say it every time we have an interview, George, but not only is it a, a gross dereliction of duty that's led us to this point, it also is the thing that's going to prevent us from coming adequately out of the lockdown situation in a safe manner without incurring another second wave and second peak. But probably we're looking at more than 40,000 deaths have occurred due to COVID-19 in England, uh, sorry, in the United Kingdom thus far. Thus far. And uh, there's uh, a head of steam uh, sometimes from the most surprising quarters, uh, demanding uh, that we uh, send our workers back to work in what is still a highly infective, toxic environment. Where do you stand on that? I mean, everyone is finding this a challenge. Everyone finding it tiring. I think it's generally the youngest and fit of us, fittest of us, um, who are most, you know, inconvenienced and annoyed by these health measures. But all of us can be a vector for the virus. I do think that if you look at the initial report that was put forward by Imperial College that did the pandemic modelling, which we're told was the reason um, that the government finally uh, switched to these population controls, they pointed out that doing nothing would have half a million deaths. But then they also said they used a trigger of ITU occupancy. And when ITU occupancy became high, I, there were a lot of critical cases presented to hospital, that would trigger lockdown. And when it became below a certain point, if you released um, the, the lockdown, then you'd get a second wave and then a third wave. And I'm afraid that this will be the scenario that we face. I do think currently, if you look at the people who are pressurizing um, the Conservative government, there was a large list of their own donors and business people who are very keen to um, try and get out of the financial crisis that they're in. The financial crisis, of course, is not simply caused by coronavirus alone, although that's clearly a contributing and precipitating cause. Really what's underlying the financial crisis is overall levels of poverty, which are pandemic globally. And I'm afraid to say that when we 
come back from this, when we see the level of spending that our government have had in order to bail out large businesses, far less of it going directly to workers who are the most needy and most numerous section of the population, we'll find another burden of debt falling upon the taxpayer, which will drive yet more austerity measures. We're already seeing life expectancy beginning to falter and decrease amongst the poorest populations, particularly of northern women um, uh, in, in Britain. Prior to this pandemic, and I'm afraid to say that that is an economic condition which is underlying the situation, but do I think it's safe um, to release the lockdown at this point? Uh, I really don't, George. I, I really feel that the ideal situation would be to have the targeted measures, so widespread testing to allow us to know exactly where the virus is and deal with it in an intelligent manner. And in that way, you can have a structured uh, release to the parts of the population who are least affected and still isolate the virus from the population. It's quite clear that that's not going to happen now. This promised three and a half million tests has totally evaporated as far as I can see. Um, we've not done, performed more than 550,000 tests. Um, so a very small percentage of the overall population and still a very small percentage of frontline workers and health staff have been tested. So there doesn't seem to be a clear way out without incurring a second wave of cases and mortality on top of that very significant amount that we've already experienced. And of course, there was the second wave uh, of the so-called Spanish flu, miscalled Spanish flu, because in fact, it would have been better described as American flu, as it came from America. Uh, the second wave was more deadly uh, than the first. Indeed, George. Uh, that, that is, it's a, it's a real worry. And, you know, uh, there are a lot of suspicion about the intervention of big pharma, and I totally understand that. But uh, I think a vaccination uh, will give us a way forward on a world scale. But, it, you know, as things currently stand, those money-making parts of health are privatized. So the pharmaceutical industry, vaccination industry, which is, a, you know, these are multi-billion dollar industries are not nationalized. It's the debt incurring part, those who are purchasing the medicines, providing care for the elderly. These are the parts which are in national hands. But the parts of the economy which really make money are in private hands. And therefore, inevitably, a mass vaccination program on a world scale will, call, will greatly enrich uh, you know, GlaxoSmithKline uh, and Sanofi in particular, um, and, and whoever produces these um, vaccinations. But I do feel they are and will offer a way forward. Though even for vaccination, it's, it's arguable. You should be testing the population to see whether you actually need that vac vaccination rather than giving out in a, in a blanket way. If you have been exposed to the coronavirus, if you've got natural immunity, of course, we don't know absolutely how long that will last because this is a new virus and, and that immunity varies with from, from virus to virus. But it does seem to me that however we look at things, you know, there has to be mass testing, not just the frontline workers, but really of the population to deal with the situation effectively. And it's quite clear that there's been a gross dereliction of duty there. And just to bring back to where we started, uh, I, you know, I, I do think it's imperative that we have a look at Operation Cygnus, that we, that we understand where the failings were, why nothing was done, and that we hold uh, this government, because it's this government, you know, ministers who are, who are still in this government uh, to account as to why no reasonable preparations to deal with the situation were made. Dr. Ranjit, always a pleasure and an education, actually, to hear you. Thanks very much for joining us once again. 55% of you are still happy that Boris is back. Only 45% are not. You can still vote uh, on my Twitter feed.
at George Galloway. Freddie says, Johnson will be, retreated, will be treated like a returning hero by his fans in the mainstream media. Very, very doubtful any of them will be inclined to ask him the questions that need asked about his government's handling of this pandemic. Steve says, Bozo is back. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Here's David in Texas. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, David. Yeah, George, I want to talk about the stream betting of politicians. Okay, go on. And this will apply to your guys is just as well our guys here in America. You know, I'm looking at Syria and uh, uh, going on an apology tour and helping them rebuild. And I'm looking, I'm thinking about which candidate's going to be in line with this, Trump or Biden? Who do you think is going to be in line with going over and helping Syria rebuild? And, uh, neither. And, uh, uh, neither, I don't think. <laughs> so we're going to have to do it then uh, by other means. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm hoping that Jesse Ventura will run. So I've got somebody to ask people to vote for. Man, I'm tell you what. We have a list of demands, what we want when we go over there to work. And, and Jesse would be a great leader. Because we want to be like honorary Cossacks. You know what I'm saying? Like, we want to go over and help rebuild and come in there like some heroes. You know, we want a ceremony, maybe get us a plaque or something official from the Russian government. And, and uh, you know, if we really get the deep state mad, maybe we're going to need asylum <laughs> over in Russia or something. We don't want to be by Snowden. You know what I'm I saying? I think the weather what would be think? better in Syria because I've been in Texas and the weather in Syria is quite similar. Uh, to you. You might find out a bit cold getting, uh, getting asylum in Russia, David. Well, we want to, we want to uh, do our apology tour in Russia. We want to apologize to Russia also. We want to do that apology tour in July and August, if, you know, if it's all right with, you know, with the... Yeah, uh, if, there's, <laughs> if there's international uh, travel by then. David, that's fascinating. Thanks very much for uh, letting us uh, in on that. Who do you think is going to win the presidency? Thank you. David, did you get that? Who do you think is going to win in November? Unfortunately, we've lost David in Texas, but we've got the legend that is Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello. Um, I just finished reading The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. Now, George, I read it this week and I found it very long and at times difficult. But I've done so, and I feel quite proud of myself, because it wasn't an easy book. It was over 700 pages. But there are a couple of points I wanted to make. Go on, yeah. The first was, um, there was a poor man who killed himself and his family in the book, mm -hmm. uh, because they couldn't face this total poverty. Mm -hmm. And they left this note that said, this is not my crime, it's society's. Mm -hmm. And that stuck in my throat. I thought that was very relevant, actually. Mm. And the other point was that um, socialism was mostly rejected by these poor workers. By the workers, uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. Frank Owen uh, might have been uh, uh, saintly, uh, but the, his workmates took some persuading, didn't they? Well, yeah, and there's another bloke called Barrington, out of the characters, as well as Frank Owen. Mm -hmm. And to try and convince them was very hard. I mean... It's not much change, actually. Well, that's, yeah. that is, in a way, the greatness of the book because the case for socialism that Owen makes 
uh, is exactly the same as uh, I would make today. Yeah. And the opposition to it uh, is expressed in exactly <laughs> the same terms today as yeah. it was in the early uh, 1900s. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of um, parallels at the moment with that. Um, but I did find that I'm, there was a bit, it was a bit monotonous in parts because it went on and on and on. And because I'm getting old and tired, my husband sacrificed the Sunday so I could finish the book, and I didn't cook him his roast dinner. Um, I'm very pleased I read it, and I got a lot from it, and I'm glad he's now got a nice grave in Liverpool. Me too. Thank you very much, uh, Norma. Sorry you didn't enjoy it as much as I'd hoped you would, but you did get a lot from it, and then I suppose that's what really counts uh, about the book. Last call, I think, in the evening is from Hamid in London. Let's hear from Hamid. Go ahead, Hamid. Yeah, hi. I just wanted to know, did you see the ONS figures, Office for National Statistics? I did, yes. Came out? I did. Uh, I, I know you are very much in favor of a quarantine. I'm not against it, but I'm just saying you should question everything and compare things. Obviously, you know, Sweden didn't have a quarantine, and the number of deaths per million of population is only 200 compared to the UK, which is approximately 400. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's true, uh, but it's uh, of the Scandinavian countries, which are vast countries with relatively small populations. Uh, Sweden has overwhelmingly the largest number of deaths. No, but if you take it per million of population... Yeah, but that, that's not as, website, people keep, uh, as people who are against uh, quarantine are always... I'm not pointed. against it. I'm no, just saying we should yeah, look at the figures like properly. You sound like you're against it. Uh, no, so, no, but you seem very dictatorial tonight. You, you attack people, you don't let them speak. Well, I'm letting you, you speak. You in your head that it has to be quarantined. I'm, I'm letting I'm you speak. I'm not saying that it should be a quarantine. I'm letting you, you speak. I'm letting you no, speak. No, you're not. You're breaking me up. You no, didn't let me finish my actually, point. Actually, I was talking. So let me talk and then you talk, okay? okay? You've been talking uh, for the, two hours. No? Well, it's my show, Hamid. I know, but you have to make a point. You've made the same point. No, but let me finish my point about the ONS figures, if no, I may. Well, no, because I'm answering the point you made about Sweden. But you didn't let me You're finish wrong. what well, I you can, you can finish it in a minute. Okay. The population in Sweden, in a vast country, has uh, therefore uh, fantastically less density of population than we do. So the proper comparison is not between Sweden and Britain, uh, but between Sweden and Denmark, Sweden and Norway. And if you make that comparison, the libertarian wonder experiment of Sweden suddenly doesn't look so good. Now, the ONS figures that you refer to make it clear that our death rate in Britain is almost double of what the government is daily claiming it to be. Over to you, Hamid. Yeah, what I was going to say with the ONS figures, uh, it's that what they said also, if you read the thing, the 32,000 people have already died this year of the flu. And unfortunately, the figures are very bad. And I quoted, my son quoted, and I'm not happy about it, is that uh, the figures are still not as bad as the flu in 2000. Yeah. 
So I think there is a good point to be able to have a discussion, but mm-hmm. not to be put down by everybody. Well, go on. Uh, you've got the floor. It. You've got the floor. Yeah. Go on. Tell us. Yeah. Go on. So, so what, I, what I was saying is, uh, and I agree with you with regarding uh, this uh, being a Chinese thing and blaming the Chinese for it. What, what uh, astonishes me is that Britain, America, and all these countries, which you say they have a high death rate, if you compare it, for example, to Germany, would you agree Germany is a big country like the UK? It's much bigger. And, much, it's, and, it, has uh, and density, it has the same density of population? Yes, more dense. And uh, yeah. Ger- Germany, and you look at, Germany yeah. has 5,000 deaths and we have 40,000 deaths. So that tells you about the healthcare system. But I'm trying to say that the UK and US, what is shown to people is that they're not well prepared. If you can lose 30 million Funnily jobs enough, I knew that. Funnily enough, uh, Hamid, uh, I knew, I know not, I knew that, uh, that the British and the American approach to healthcare is uh, shockingly bad. Uh, what I'm asking you, and you've still got the floor, is yeah. what should we be doing other than quarantine? I'm not, uh, I, I'm not a doctor, but what I did read about it, this uh, Professor Ferguson was originally saying that it should be 500,000 people, not should be, he was predicting 500,000 deaths. Then he said 20,000 deaths. But if, did you know Professor Ferguson was also the advisor to Tony Blair and he came to, uh, I forgot whether it was the foot and mouth disease or the, yes, and then to the conservative government on the mad cow disease. Mm. And always he gets his figures wrong. And the problem is that when you publish a paper, it's not peer reviewed. This paper was not peer reviewed. It was just, and the other thing which I think you can have every day, you can have a press conference and some minister come and tell us some rubbish. But what they don't tell you is SAGE, this committee which advises the government, who is on this committee? And what is their information? Publish it. Let people see it. Let's discuss it with other professors from Cambridge, Oxford, or Germany, or Sweden, so that people can see what's happening. This way, what is going to happen? There's going to be inquiry afterwards, and they're going to say, well, experts told us to do this, and that's what we did. That's the danger. uh, Okay, Hamid, uh, thank you very much uh, indeed for your call, which is the last call uh, that we'll have time uh, for my apologies if you didn't get through and were trying. As I said, we had some telephone issues at the beginning of the show. Uh, and I hope I got through most people's uh, social media comments and I'll respond after the show uh, where I can. Freddie says, uh, no, I've done that one. Uh, Neil says, there's been no different with Bozo being absent. The government remain as incompetent as ever. And Cornelius says, the big fella's back and will be kicking COVID's bum for us. Sit back, chill. He's got this and we'll take it from here. And John says, yes, we need Boris Johnson back, making a holy show of himself and the Tory party. The dopey, overprivileged man-child is exactly what the country needs to see. And CJ says, yes, we really need that titanic intellect in a world full of icebergs. Well, that's more or less all that we've got uh, time for. Uh, It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. I'll be talking uh, on Tuesday night on uh, my Facebook and on my Twitter feed. If you want to hear what I've got to say about the current situation, it's not a mother of all talk shows. Uh, 
but it is a speech by me. Uh, and of course, you can uh, order my own book, uh, Queensway, which is, that's the one. Now this book deals with who the partisans would have been here in this country if Hitler had arrived. Who would have been the collaborators? Who would have been the resistance? Would Mr. Churchill have stayed or fled? Who would have been alongside him if he decided to stay and fight? Queensway, you can get it on Amazon or directly from me. God bless. See you next week.